Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast episode 68. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week I agree with the High Court stating that it's legal for the Conservatives to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. I know, you're probably quite surprised. However, I will say it's because I think it should be illegal for Saudi Arabia to buy them and then Boris Johnson and company would have to stand on the corner casually flaunting bits of planes while wearing sassy wear until someone in a car with tinted windows pulls up and asks discreetly, hey, how much to push an apartheid on the Yemen? many people. This week's show comes to you mere hours before part boom mic, part ghost train and Prime Minister Theresa May has her official relaunch. Whether or not she'll be changing her name to some sort of symbol that looks a bit like a snake eating itself while insisting everyone refer to her as the barely Prime Minister formerly known as Theresa May is yet to be seen. Perhaps she'll go down the Snoop Dogg reggae route and become Theresa Lyon, obviously choosing the Lyon bit over the Snoop bit to avoid confusion over her investigatory powers bill. Or she could go from Theresa May to T. Mebe, or even more appropriately just T. Meh. What we do know is that May will announce that a new approach is needed and that she wants rival parties to contribute and not just criticise, you know, in the way that her and her party have been doing for the last two and a half months. Calling for this now is like me telling you, the listener, that you're a total awful piece of shit and so's your family and your friends, they're all shit and anyone who likes you or anything you like are the worst examples of humankind and mega shit. Then, me asking you when you're popping by to help me paint the living room. What this means is that voters who opted for Conservatives in order to avoid a government that was constructed from a fractured party, had relations to Northern Irish terrorist groups and didn't have Labour's policies are now probably feeling like Lord Buckethead was indeed a better option after all. Shave Gerbil and Secretary of the State Damien Green said May reaching out to other parties was a grown-up way of doing politics, hopefully meaning that he now finally understands that most adults in today's rising living costs are still dependent on vast amounts of help. It looks like May will stay on as Prime Minister for at least another year, and Justice Secretary David Lidlington said rumours of her earlier departure were down to too much sun and too much warm Prosecco. Depressing to think that the House of Commons has a quarter of a million pounds annual alcohol bill, yet they can't even manage to keep the good stuff in the fridge. If that isn't the sign of a mismanaged parliament, I don't know what is. 
Meanwhile, opposition party Labour are aiming to write off all student debt, which would cost around £100 billion to do so, most of which I think is just all the interest on all mine that I've never paid back. Sorry. Shadow Education Secretary and one of Catherine Tate's Northern characters, Angela Rayner, said that the party would not do it unless they could afford to. But the Conservatives have argued that if students don't have crippling debt early on in life, then how will they fit in or understand current British society under their government? Or something like that, anyway. President of America and animated bowl of potpourri, Donald Trump met Russia President and world's angriest thumb, Vladimir Putin, at the G20 conference. They met for two hours, probably because that's how long it took Putin to understand Trump's broken English. Trump said that he asked Putin twice about tampering with the US election, and Putin denied. Cool, well, that's that then. I mean, I'm pretty sure Putin could have had Eric Trump's severed head on his lap, yet tell Donnie that he had no idea where his son was, and Trump would still think, great, that's sorted then, I trust this man. Of course, we know that that wouldn't happen because Eric Trump is a vampire and can only be killed by a stake through the heart, which Donald Trump would probably put ketchup on. Trump and Putin did manage to agree a ceasefire in southwest Syria, though there is every chance Putin will just say that's what happened and that will be enough for Trumpo. Also, none of this has been signed off by the real president of America, Ivanka Trump, who attended much more of the G20 conference than Donald did, so really, who knows? Other developments are that Trump hopes to have a trade deal with the UK very quickly. This is, however, probably just because we'll give him anything in order to make him leave again. Meanwhile, former Prime Minister and sausage mascot David Cameron reared his oddly inflated glistening head above the parapet he's been hiding under for a year in order to tell critics of austerity that they are selfish. Yes, people who are against austerity are selfish. Answering a question no one had ever asked him ever or wanted his answer from ever, David Cameron said that it's selfish because it's spending money today that you might need tomorrow. Whereas, of course, he's right, you know, it's far less selfish to store that money away offshore like David Cameron's dad did so your children can profit off it forever without ever contributing to society, leading them to make really careless decisions with other people's lives without much consequence for themselves. Yeah, that sounds much better. Oh, hello, hello, how are you? Are you? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And yes, blue whale carcasses are very hard to get out of the carpet. You're right. I am good. Thank you for asking. That's very nice of you. Although I am slowly melting as I record this in my flat, which I feel I should probably declare to the council in this weather as dual use of home and sauna. I'm kind of concerned I might evaporate by the time this podcast is done. Enough about me, though, and more about me. So uh, thank you to all those who came along to the preview shows I did in Northern Ireland last week in Belfast and Derry. Uh, both were a proper, proper joy. Uh, as the Black Box Theatre in Belfast and Mason's Comedy Club in Derry, which is excellent. Um, and sorry again to everyone that came for my lack of an ending of a show. That is what the rest of this week is for when I finish this podcast. Uh, well, that and finally seeing Spider-Man. Priorities, eh? I mean, if all else fails, I'm just going to finish my Edinburgh show by acting out my favourite bits of Spider-Man. I mean, it's getting four to five star reviews everywhere, so at least critics would like about 20 minutes of my show but seriously um very lovely crowds thank you very much for coming along thank you for laughing at all the jokes about the dup and also a big thanks to colin this week for donating to the kofi uh that's ko-fi.com uh donation account as he was unable to buy me a pint in Derry because i had a 3 30 a.m start the next day yes i do need a manager no i really shouldn't organize my own diary anymore you are all correct uh, if you too would like to donate to the show please do that at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro for a nice monthly thingy or kofi.com that's ko-fi.com for a one-off thingy both are hugely appreciated also please 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 do give this show a review if you haven't um, there's not been a new review up on the iTunes page for many many moons and it does help get new listeners on board so please head over there and really you can just review the new Spider-Man film if you like if you haven't really got anything to say about the podcast stick up five stars tell me what you think about Spider-Man no spoilers though please 
Belize. I don't get to see it till Wednesday. Um, also, if you have time, do go check out the brilliant Johnny and the Baptist new video animated by Twitter legend Musa Lane for their song Only the Queen. It is brilliant. Um, and that is sort of it for the preamble this week. Oh, well, apart from a very mini ask, uh, some of you are part of the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group. Some of you are. That's usually how it goes. Personally, I absolutely hate Facebook. Uh, I try and be on there as little as possible. If I had genuine interest in how the lives of people I went to school with were doing, I'd have kept in touch with them. That's how it works. Um, anyway, if you're on the Facebook group, you may have noticed uh, how crap I've been at updating it lately, so I'm very sorry. Um, but what I'd like to do, actually, is make that group a bit more of a forum to discuss politics, share links to interesting or funny politics articles, and generally just comment on podcast stuff. Um, it is a group you have to join. I've, I've done that because there's been quite a few crazy racists that have attempted to join. I've told them to get fucked. Um, but listen, if you're interested in joining, just posting, conversation, uh, that would be good. So please do do that and please start posting and then I'll definitely add gags and things and links when I'm not travelling around the country uh, doing crazy half-written shows. Good? Good. Uh, this week's show has an interview with Northern Irish political comedian Alan Irwin as I was over there and he was very happy to chat and so I asked him all about what it's like to have absolutely no government at all. Also, I'm going to be looking at if scrapping tuition fees for all students is totally feasible or totes feebs as the kids say which is yet another reason as to why they all need affordable higher education so, you know, they can use proper words again. But of course, before that stuff, there's this fluff. Conservative MP for Newton Abbott, Anne-Marie Morris, has been recorded saying a highly racist phrase, including the N-bomb, at a meeting of Eurosceptics in London. None of the other Conservative panellists at the event, including MPs Bill Cash and John Redwood, seem to react, which would make you assume either it's a phrase that they say often enough for it not to be alarming, or they assume that as Brexit was being discussed, why not surround the subject with comments that will also send us back several decades. Many Labour MPs have already called for Morris to resign, but her only apology at the time of recording was that the comment was unintentional. Yes, because we've all had a slip of the tongue and reverted back to the language of Jim Crow, right? I mean, how often on the news have you heard presenters get all tongue-twisted and then just start spouting KKK slogans? Or, you know, you're walking around in the street and someone bangs their foot and then they wail out bits of the story of Confederate General Robert E. Lee's life. I think what Anne-Marie Morris means is that she usually saves that sort of language for shouting at foreigners in her area. Therefore, it was unintentional to use it in a meeting. At the time of recording, Theresa May has suspended Anne-Marie Morris. Uh, we don't know above what, but hopefully it's like alligators or something very sharp. In completely opposite news, the British government are going to pay £30 billion to help insure some of the world's poorest countries against disasters for the next four years. The deal is coined as Future of Aid, a combination of words that usually confuse and upset Conservative politicians when used individually. But this is a good thing in theory, as it will protect countries from costs of natural disasters as well as other large-scale events. And such prevention, rather than reaction, could save money in the long term as well as curb further refugee crises. This future of aid contribution is going to be happening alongside money being given from the UK government for Africa's banking sector and also to improve the Dar es Salaam poor, all of which are things the UK could reap rewards from post-Brexit. However, there's been no announcement of insurance companies willing to take part in the future of aid scheme yet, and with constant calls for the foreign aid budget to be halved or more, this might cause even more public dislike for the PM, especially when not much money has been put into flood prevention here in the UK over the past few years. 
Also, and I can't tell you why anyone would think this with a government like ours that has such a flawless record, but if this is being done solely for the benefit of the City of London, will the measures be properly used to aid citizens of the countries that it's going to? And why doesn't May just stand up to Trump removing the US from the Paris Agreement, considering how much damage global warming is causing to all those areas? Well, as you can tell, right now the answers to all those questions are, ah, I don't know, go ask your dad. But for a second, let's just pretend that this is all just selfless goodwill from the government for once. Just for once. I mean, perhaps Theresa May was visited by three ghosts and this is the result. In which case, the future of AIDS scheme will actually help other people while making the Conservatives less popular. I mean, I don't know about you, but if it works out like that, this is definitely my favourite government policy so far. After voting against the amendment to the Queen's speech to lift the public sector pay cap, the government have now offered a 2% pay rise to firefighters. But the Firefighters Union have declined it, as after a pay freeze from 2010 to 2012 and a 1% pay rise cap since then, offering them 2% pay rise is like offering someone who's not eaten for weeks a Rivita. No, that won't fucking help. Not even if you put margarine and a bit of cheese on it, which is, to be fair, the only way to make them bearable. It's like eating card. Salty card. If you haven't heard last week's interview with Lee Pickett from the FBU, do go back and have a listen and you'll realise the stresses the fire brigade are currently under. But while that offer is like fanning flames with a bit of loo roll, this does mean that the government are willing to breach the pay cap and it could mean that it's lifted properly soon. However, nurses, midwives and soldiers won't have their pay cap lifted this year as it has already been set. Though I'd argue that if those three job sectors teamed up to protest the government, they'd find themselves up against an elite strike team who can heal themselves and unlike the government actually deliver. And I'm not sure they'd want to face that. The High Court have rejected claims that the UK government is unlawful by not suspending the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia. The campaign against arms trade said that more than 10,000 people have been killed in Yemen by weapons and arms supplied by the UK to the Saudis, and therefore the UK were breaching international humanitarian law. But the High Court saw some top-secret evidence that could not be disclosed to the public and decided that actually the government are all OK, as hey, it's not guns who kill people, right? It's the people you sell the guns to who fill those guns with bullets and then kill people with them. I do wonder what that closed material said. Something like, The 39 Steps is an organisation of spies collecting information on behalf of the Foreign Office of... Probably. Either way, sadly it looks like the further removed we are from the fight, the more it's now legally okay for the UK to supply arms for terrible wars. Fingers crossed that there's an appeal, and at the very worst the Supreme Court say, hey, it's still legal, but you can't advertise, and Boris Johnson has to deliver everything to its location of use by hand. If you head back to episode 30, I spoke to Andrew Smith at the Campaign Against the Arms Trade all about that, and you can hear all more info about it there. Jacob Rees-Mogg looks like a villain, a real nasty villain in a children's book. Oh, but he's so funny and he's so charming. Yes, so are villains. Just take a look. He tried to change time, so some said was behind. Like in the past, but all of the time, that's just like a villain. A real evil villain, wanting to slow time to fight the flash. He wants bowler hats for council officials. He does not want marriage for gay individuals. That's just like a villain who wants to destroy love. Because he can't find love, except for his penguins. Yes, they wear bowler hats. Penguins with bowler hats. Jacob Rees-Mogg looks like a villain. The sort of villain who would live on an island. Plotting some bad things until children ruin it. Then he'd get angry and kidnap their dog. 
think global warming is total nonsense But that Brexit is going quite fine That's just like a villain who likes total chaos Because it upsets the fabric of space and time He has six children, which is too many children Who needs that many children? Does he not sleep? That's like the T-1000 or lots of other villains Villains don't sleep, do you see he's a villain? Jacob Rees-Mogg is definitely a villain How can you like him when he wants you dead? I mean, he probably doesn't want you dead, I have to say that for I spent two days last week in Belfast and a day in Derry for shows. And while there were a terrifying amount of UDA flags in the area I stayed in, the country didn't really feel like it was racing around in a blind panic without a government, despite what headlines might make you think. If anything, according to the audience I performed to, they were all just pretty sick of how useless everyone was being as well, and otherwise everything was trotting along as per normal down to the beautifully rainy July weather. So considering that the only time we heard about Northern Ireland during the election campaign over here on the mainland was when Corbyn's connections to the IRA were being used as campaign slurs, and then the only time we heard about Northern Ireland after the election was as the government made a deal with the DUP to retain power, I thought it would be quite nice to hear what people in Northern Ireland thought about everything, for once. If you remember back in January for episode 45, I spoke to Matt Fulton at Progressive Politics Northern Ireland, who explained all about the cash frash scandal and the then upcoming assembly elections. But so, so much has happened since then that I thought this podcast was due an update. So this week, thanks to the brilliant Black Box Theatre in Belfast, who let us use one of the dressing rooms to record, I spoke to political comedian Alan Irwin about how things are. Alan is a brilliantly funny and very sharp man and he can be seen doing gigs all over Northern Ireland and occasionally the rest of the UK too. And we had a very lovely chat about what now and what next for Northern Ireland. Here's Alan. Okay, the first thing I wanted to ask you, Alan, as a knowledgeable man who lives in Northern Ireland, unlike me, and that's all I have going for me. But yeah, thanks. that's that's enough. I mean, that's more than most people who don't live in Northern Ireland. That is very true. I think that gives you a very reasonable understanding <laughs> of what on earth is going on. And I mean, that was the first thing I wanted to ask. Really, is are you ever going to have a government? Well, I mean, it's. I think part of the problem is the, the UK government keeps setting deadlines for when it has to happen and then they don't meet the deadline they go ah we'll just give you another week sorry so now they're like they, I think it was, it was like March and now we're in you know July um, and now they're saying it'll probably be the end of the summer um, and who knows I mean it may never happen they might just keep doing that I mean uh, there is that concern as well that they're all Continuing to get paid anyway, so it's not there's not really any incentive oh, so to. No, there's no point. Like so, technically for them, it's really long paid holiday. Yes, it isn't. Like I mean, because you know, there's like for example, the DUP and Sinn Fein have like nearly thirty MLAs, and maybe three of them are in the negotiating team. Everybody else just in the house or on their holidays or you know. My God, I didn't real I didn't realize that that that. that, that <laughs> you, I mean, does it feel like there's a large amount of give a shit about it? Like, well, you know, there, there really is because. Um, like for I, I signed it to I mean I'm not one of these I think you know MPs are probably quite reasonably paid but they there was a petition went round you know th- that they should stop their pay until this is sorted to force them to basically compromise um, and the reply from the Secretary of State's office was that uh, actually whether or not they should be paid is one of the things that they're discussing so they're deciding whether or not they should continue to get paid which doesn't seem like the best system 
No, no, it's sort of, yeah, you kind of feel that there should at least be some sort of independent... Some sort of independent review body, but apparently not. It's, it's up to the people who are being paid, whether or not they should get paid. And they're not morons, you know, so they're... Of course they're, of of course, course they're going to get paid. Of course they're going to get paid. No, it's fine, don't worry, I don't want this free money. You know, that's insane. That's ridiculous. I mean, and, and I know, but I know, right, and I know a part of it is to do with the UK government. I always think it's incredibly appropriate that the Secretary of North Ireland uh, is called James Broken. Yeah, that's about right, yeah. Um, and, and he consistently, what was it he said in March? He said, time is short, and then left it for three months. Yeah. <laughs> Which is incredible. But, but you know, is there also, there's, there's still certain agreements that they can't work through. I mean, do you think any of them are valid? I mean, and I say valid, I feel like the marriage equality one is obviously something that is valid yeah. and important. The other one was, was it Sinn Féin wanted an Irish language They wanted an Irish language act, um, which... It's, well, Irish language is always... It's obviously going to be a dicey issue up here. But also then, some people are arguing that there's also Ulster Scots, which is basically an accent, but people say it's another language that's protected. Um, so the DUP now is kind of hazing its bets a bit, or at least was prior to the becoming the Kingmakers, that they would pass like a Languages Act that would offer rights to all sort of language regardless of which one but then the problem also is that there are more Cantonese speakers in Northern Ireland than there are Ulster Scots speakers so then <laughs> they have an argument that they their language then should have official status as well um, and I think there's nearly similar amounts of Ulster Scots and Polish speakers so then all of a sudden you're going to have eight or nine languages you know that are all protected and all required for documents to be in those languages and so, so it's a bit of a mess that is a mess and is it a case of yeah, is it a case of doing it would be too complicated? Is it a case of actually, it, would it make more sense just to not pass any sort of language? Well, like how, how do you feel, where, where do you feel the preference of the public is? Do the public want a language well, act? Well, the problem is... is like a hassle to everyone? Well, the public, I think, the part of the problem is that the Irish language has become really politicised. So now, um, because... Sinn Féin has been sort of going, you know, pushing for an Irish language act for years now. It's now seen as like, oh, you have to be a Republican to support an Irish language act. So both sides have politicised it now, where it's, it's sort of... Now unionists are so opposed to it that they won't let it happen, while nationalists are going, well, we're not... This is, you know, the most important thing now. Just so until that happens, there'll be no movement. So then you just have that, you know, a movable... Was it... Unstoppable force, a movable object. You yeah. know, so uh, they've just decided that that's, you know, and and the problem is there's a lot. You know, most Irish speakers, I think people who maybe want to learn Irish, you know, for example, I mean, I'm from a Protestant background. There never would have been my school didn't offer Irish, or there was sure. never that option ever. Um, what if you went to a, a Catholic school, then you would be learning that over, say, French or you know. So because it's it's segregated between the communities, then. There's very little middle ground, really, between the two sides. So that's the big second point. Although I think most people don't really particularly care. Sure. You know, it's, it's, there is a cost issue as well about if you, all the extra documents and changing road signs and everything else. But, I mean, I don't think that's the main concern. I think the main concern is people thinking, well, the other side does or doesn't want it, so sure. I want, you know, I want, I want it, or don't. You know, sure, it's the opposite. Who gets the, who gets to come out on top. Yeah, it's about a win now rather yeah, yeah, than the yeah. actual content of... And, and is that the main thing? Because I mentioned the marriage equality thing earlier, but I had read in a few sources that <laughs> DUP were not uh, so opposed to it anymore. They're certain, they, well, they used to say no Irish language act under any circumstances. Right. Um, but they've now started to hedge their bets. So now what they're saying is, well, there won't be an act that's specifically for Irish, but we might do a law that is 
four languages sure. and then yeah. that means they can kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth I suppose yeah, yeah. you know they say well we didn't pass an Irish language act right. you know even though they have so everybody can see a face really sure um, but, but sorry so what I meant was sorry, with the marriage equality as well with, with um, sort of gay marriage whenever mm-hmm. I heard that they sort of back down on that a bit as well yeah they're not they're not being as explicit about it now, although I think that's more to do with um, the situation at the minute kind of suits the DUP because they have all the cards um, but they also they're not stupid so they know that if I mean a lot of people I think in England Scotland Wales were a bit horrified once they found out a bit more about the DUP social policies um, so the DUP is smart enough to know that they, if they push on that the, the uh, backlash against the Conservatives could lead to the government collapsing and then they lose all that, that sway um, so that's why you know this deal with the Conservatives doesn't mention any social policy it's all about infrastructure and education and because that suits that you know it's an easy no one in English Scotland really can get that worked up about a couple of new bridges but they can get worked up about you know gay rights or whatever sure. it may be um, so I have totally lost my train of thought but the point <laughs> But yes, so at the minute, the DUP's kind of backed off on all the talk of, um, you know, being anti-gay marriage. Or, and they haven't really kicked up a huge fuss about the change in the abortion law. Right, yeah, because I was going to ask about that yeah. as well. Yeah, that was, I, I sort of, it was very interesting from, uh, you know, from the, the, the England point of view of the, the fact that Conservatives voted through the amendment. Yeah. Uh, and, and I kind of thought, is this, how is this going to play yeah, in, your, yeah. in your new friendship? And but yeah, so basically the DUP is smart enough to know not to push on social policy, so that's why they've been talking about it less. And now it's about just getting the, their, their public stance certainly is they want the government up and running as soon as possible, but also aren't willing to compromise. They want to talk about all these issues once they're in government. Sure. Which, you know, seems like just kicking the can down the road for six months doesn't really solve the problem. You know, the, the actual road bumps aren't going to go away you know they have to sure. figure it out and it's I mean, it was something that's going to come to anyway but I mean how do people here feel about the Conservative deal uh, you know because I mean in, in, for, for us I mean uh, you know especially in sort of England we're angry that the Conservatives have clung on to power yeah. more than anything else um, and then I think as you said I think while some people were aware of the DUP it's, it, it's for others it's been a complete revelation yeah. like who are they what do they do <laughs> oh my god um but for Northern Ireland, like, I mean, like, uh, you know, obviously the Conservatives don't have a great history here, but also I, I kind of wondered, but you get a load of money. Like, is this a, yeah. how do people feel about it? Well, I suppose that's, that's uh, there's so many schools of thought. I mean, some people are very for it and think this is great. The DUP gets a say in the UK government, um, so Northern Ireland can't be ignored. Um, but also get a billion and a half pounds of money for stuff that is, you know, probably needed. Um, but then the other side, I mean, I suppose well, my side of it and quite a lot of others would be that the concern is in the short term, that's probably a pretty good deal. Mm-hmm. And also it may well lead to, you know, this may ultimately cost the Conservatives the next election because, you know, because of the deal they've made. Um, so in the long run, it works out quite well, as well sure. in the medium term rather. But in the long term, it's very hard to see a situation where the UK government can still claim to be neutral in the power sharing talks whenever they're in government with one side of the, you know, so... Do you think this gets in the way of the Good Friday agreement? Yeah. something that's been very up in the air? I, I do. I do. Um, and it's not that I necessarily think... I don't really see a situation where the Conservative government will take sides in the talks. But just from a, like a, a appearance standpoint, it's good enough a reason for Sinn Féin to say, well, we're not... 
talking to these guys anymore because this isn't a fair discussion. Um, and that's bad. You know, Sinn Féin has been pushing for a border poll for a while. Um, and this is perfect. This is, you know, for the, if they want one, this is a good way to argue for one that now the UK government is no longer neutral. So we have to have a new constitutional settlement. Right. Um, so in the long run, I think it's going to cause a lot more hassle. Um, and, you know, because as I say, the DUP's public face is there. They want to get back into government, but also it probably suits them just fine at the minute. And, and do you still feel that, like, because, so, did Sinn Féin... No, they gained seats, didn't they? The DUP lost Sinn Féin. There's only, it used to be... I think it was, like, 30... The DUP had, like, 38 seats or something, and the Sinn Féin had, say, 26 or 25. Right. Now it's... DUP has 30, and Sinn Féin has 29. Right. Now, part of that is they cut us uh, one-sixth of the MLAs. They went down from 108 to 90. Right. That's right. Um, certainly they cut one sixth of them anyway so that was part of the reason but also it now means that it's even more polarised in the assembly no because and also in the, in the in the general election the, the UUP and the uh, STLP were like wiped out yeah. weren't they in terms of um, I mean there was well there's 18 seats you had 10 DUP 7 Sinn Féin and one independent unionist who only won because the Austrian unionist didn't run a candidate and she had a majority cut from something like 10,000 to 1,000 so wow. the DUP would have had 11 seats if the Austrian unions had run. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what the, what the answer is. The problem is, as long as these talks stagnate, you would think in a, in a normal um, sort of fully functioning democracy rather than consociationalism or whatever it's called, uh, you would assume that if the party's deadlocked for long enough, eventually the voters would start voting for other parties sure. to try and break the deadlock. But what actually happens is they become more entrenched because right. also both parties are very good at playing the PR game um, and saying we're the only ones that can get a good deal so you need to keep voting for us right? and thus they're increasing their vote every election and it becomes incredibly polarised then so, and, and what I was, was going to ask as well is like do you think because I mean, what I was going to ask is, is how <coughs> much power does Sinn Féin have because I know the situation in Republic now has changed and obviously there's Leo Vradica mm-hmm. who is a very interesting I'm going to use the word interesting for now but can make oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's not the word I would choose <laughs> no, but, you know. well you see personally I think he's, he's, so he's mixed race and gay but he also thinks strikes are awful and that women have abortions yeah, he, so he manages to upset the left and right wing at the same yeah, time it, it would be <laughs> unusual for a, a, a gay immigrant to be Right wing, you know. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I you would just, your immediate assumption would be he'd be the left wing party. Yeah, but he is not. No, he's absolutely he's not. not at all. He's, he's said, "How can I upset absolutely everyone?" Yeah. <laughs> this is like an incredible yeah. move. Um, but so with him in in Republic, you know, I don't know how that's going to affect Sinn Fein there, and and then mm-hmm. how will that, you know, does that then affect the the power that they have in Northern Ireland? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. Sinn Féin's card now is the border poll so there is a mechanism for that in the Good Friday Agreement um, and but it's it, all, much like I suppose the Scottish independence referendum they may not like what happens if, the, if and when they get it sure um, because the way it would work is you'd have to have a referendum in the north and a referendum in the south and both would have to pass right. so the north may narrowly pass um, but the South probably wouldn't because I think opinion polls them in are something like there's most people in the South kind of like the idea of a united Ireland. Yeah. But the reality is that Northern Ireland runs at like a 13 billion pound a year deficit and the Republic's economy can't sure. take, take that on. So if, I think the polls are something like 70% of people favoured a united Ireland. But then when asked if it would you support it if it led to higher taxes, it's down to like 38%. So. Right. It's probably you know, but so I think, but I I do honestly think until there's a border poll, 
Sinn Féin's brand is kind of you know it's still quite strong it's still quite strong because they, they haven't been damaged by anything you know they're sure and, and I suppose even because the thing that absolutely amazes me I suppose is when I learn about say the Cash for Ash scandal mm-hmm. I, I still can't understand how Arlene Foster is at the deep you know yeah. in, in the position that she's in and now in the position with the Westminster government as well and I and I presume that just keeps Sinn Féin strong as well because if people mm-hmm. look at well, yeah, done. I mean, basically what happened was, I mean, it goes back to, I suppose, 15 years ago or a bit more, but one of the reasons the Ulster Unionist struggle was they were seen as caving into the demands of nationalists. Mm. So as soon as Martin McGuinness said that Arlene Foster has to resign, at that point she couldn't resign because right. then that would be caving into the demands of Sinn Féin. I, I have a feeling probably if he hadn't said that, in a couple of weeks after, she probably would have been pushed out by her own party. Right. But that led to her own party sort of... Uh, put up the shields and you know let's, oh, so let's close ranks around her. If anything, it might have. It might, yeah, because they can't be seen to give into it. Right. But at the same time, Sinn Fein couldn't be seen to go. This is fine. We'll just let this carry on. So they're so you know it's it's it's, it's ridiculous in a way. You know, there's I know even in, in most countries, parties on in government and their opposition don't necessarily. They usually don't agree on things, but I don't think there's necessarily the principle of well they like it so we don't you know yeah. because if you had that you would have you know I mean where do you take that to is that Labour going well we don't really like the NHS because the Conservatives are continuing to fund it you know that doesn't yeah 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 it's insanity you know but <laughs> the, and then the problem is that both sides voters tend to buy into that and go well she shouldn't have to do it just because they say so and then. Jesus. So, and, and what's the? Because there's a new, there's a new Sinn Fein party leader as well. Yeah, Michelle O'Neill. She's the Michelle O'Neill. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, she's she's fine. I mean, I, I you know, I don't, I don't really know what I think of her because she hasn't been in government. Well, she hasn't had a chance to do anything, I suppose. Um, but she's she's also one of the the start of the struggle Sinn Fein always had was there was a lot of moderate nationalists who wouldn't vote for them because of their history and because they have you know ex-IRA members and that sort of thing but that generation's starting to fade away and there's, yeah. and there's so they're now more appealing to younger nationalists because a lot of them don't have that track record and Michelle is sort of the first uh, leader of Sinn Féin that has no paramilitary background so it is a big and it's the first and it's not the first female leader somebody in the 50s but you know it's a that's a big sea change in terms sure. of Sinn Féin's politics. Um, now, I'm not saying necessarily she's not sympathetic to that side of things, but certainly she herself, as to my knowledge, has never been convicted of any crimes or right. you know, identified as being the army council or anything like that. You know, sure. it's, it's a bit of a change. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Alan in a minute. But first, I started university in September 1999. Yes, that long ago. How depressing. That stupid song by Eiffel 65 about being blue was played everywhere, like some sort of cry for help from a Las Vegas show troupe. My Nokia phone only had snake on it, which constantly baffling to me as to why that snake just ate apples and then kept moving all the time instead of ever having any kind of digestion time, as surely that's going to give it really bad indigestion or kill it anyway. Um, And also, it was the second education year that tuition fees had been rolled out. That's probably the most important bit. My course was four years long, and at £3,000 per year of loan, plus interest and occasional necessary top-ups, I amounted £16,000 of debt by the time I'd left in 2003. Whoop-de-doo. As yet, I've paid pretty much none of it off due to the joys of self-employment and comedy, and every time a letter arrives at my parents' house with a chunk of interest added to the amount, I feel partly guilty at my lack of returning funds, and partly smug that they really didn't check what loaning money to someone doing a drama degree actually meant. Did I spend my loan money properly? Yes, it covered my accommodation and tuition fees, with my waiting and retail jobs covering living expenses and copious, copious drinking habits. Yeah, double vodka and coke for a pound on Thursdays at the Cherry Tree. Holy shit, that was pretty much the first year of my university life ruined. Was my degree worth it? Uh, Debatable, but then to be fair, I wouldn't be doing what I do now if I hadn't done it. Some of you would say that that probably means it definitely wasn't worth it, but hey, there you go. Do I think I should still be paying for that degree? Well, no, of course not. I don't want to pay anyone anything. And this is the current contentious issue of the week. Ever since former Lib Dem leader and name like a prosthetic limb thief Nick Clegg promised to oppose any increase in tuition fees in 2012, then didn't, and then there was an auto-tune of his apology and everything went wrong for him, it's been a pretty, pretty sore issue in the political world. Labour's recent election manifesto promised to abolish tuition fees, with them now promising to scrap all student debt. The Conservatives are talking about a review, but many say it's going to be too expensive to scrap them entirely, and funding universities may be a problem without them. And today, Lord Adonis, a man who proves nominative determinism isn't always a thing, he said tuition fees are now so politically diseased that they should be scrapped, and he's the person who came up with them in the first place. So to what degree is any of this the truth? Well, I will honours you with some info, bachelors and bachelorettes, so get ready for some serious lecturing on it all. Do you see? Do you see what I've done there? Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Oh, and I'm mainly going to be looking at tuition fees in England here, as uh, Scotland have got their own free thang going on, and I haven't really got a clue what's going on in Wales, but I once did a gig at Cardiff Uni for medical students, and trust me, they look like they were having more fun than anyone I've ever met, so I reckon they're all right. So, firstly, in England, at the moment, tuition fees for an undergraduate degree are £9,250 a year. That is just less than US private colleges, but more than anywhere else in the world. And I know you're all like, yeah, but over here in the England, we got the Oxbridges. But I'm like, yeah, but Italy's got the Bolognas and Paris has got the Parises. And they're all pretty well established as well. And they don't have to deal with the fucking Bullingdon Club. 
Most of Europe doesn't charge fees or has very low fees. And Germany has just recently scrapped theirs. And even though I just compared it to the US, all US courses are four years. And actually, England is still more expensive than any American state universities. So if you study in England for a three-year undergraduate degree, you're looking at a whacking great debt of £27,750 before any interest. That is the same price as a Schaefer Century 5000L tractor with auto boom levelling, which I have no idea what any of that means, but it sounds pretty great. I've often needed level booms, I don't know about you. Um, it also has air brakes, which I presume work like air guitars and therefore just make many people that drive tractors die. So three years of studying for invaluable information and a degree, or one big fuck-off tractor that goes around sorting out booms. Your call. Actually, after interest of 6.1%, most students are going to owe over £50,800, especially after student maintenance grants were cut. So that's a lot of student debt. Or, for that money, you could get two Rolex Pearlmaster watches, which you shouldn't buy because that is a waste and they look disgusting, like if Mr T puked on a sponge finger. Of course, I should mention, no one pays the money for an English undergraduate course up front, and it's only paid back if you earn at least £21,000 a year net. Hence, why I haven't paid anything back. But still, if you land a job that pays that much once you leave uni, that's a lot to be paying back, right? So you'd almost think a ton of students would just think, fuck that, I'm going to get a massive tractor. But actually, student numbers have constantly increased, according to UCAS figures. Applications last year rose again, and the most recent time that there was a fall in numbers was back in 2012, when tuition fees were increased. But still, this autumn, there's due to be more than 500,000 applicants starting university in England. But the issue isn't really how many, but who many. Yeah, I said who many, and I have a 2-1. By who many, I mean 18-year-olds heading to university have gone up, as have the amount of female applicants who are 35% more likely to go to university than men. And it's those sorts of stats, if I remember, that are used to persuade teenage boys to apply in the first place. But pupils from state-funded schools applying for uni have fallen, as have older students and nursing students, which is very worrying. Confusingly, the number of 18-year-old applicants from disadvantaged areas has risen consistently, and that all sounds like it's a bit at odds with each other, and so what does any of it mean? Well, as always, figures aren't complete, as UCAS's figures on state school pupils don't include state-funded academies, grammar schools or sixth-form colleges, so it's hard to say for sure if these increased fees have prevented anyone from any background from applying. You sort of think that UCAS, of all people, would have qualified staff that could put this together. Though we do know for sure that nurse applications have dropped. And though while there is every chance that that is to do with nursing training funds being cut, it could also be that people know the job of nursing itself is stuck in a pay freeze, so why save lives when you can barely keep your own going? I really hope all those prospective nursing students buy those big fucking tractors instead and chase Jeremy Hunt absolutely everywhere on them until he's run over. Oh, and as I said, applications from older students and part-time students have dropped a lot by around £20,000. A lot of those are likely to be adults who often already have too many costs and have jobs that will no longer pay for their staff to take the courses, which is a really odd thing for a company to do. Hey everyone, come by with us. We 100% guarantee all our staff are underqualified. Weird. And still according to the Office of Economic Cooperation and Development, being a graduate does mean that you're more likely to get better paid work and a lower likelihood that you'll become unemployed. So it does seem really worth it. And of course, this changes depending on what you studied, where you studied it, what grade you achieved. And I mean, it's not in any stats, but who you happen to meet with and work with. I mean, if I'd gone to Cambridge University and somehow been in the footlights, I'd probably be too busy to be doing this podcast because I'd be doing the O2. However, I went to University of Kent and I spent my whole first year living next door to a really weird posh boy who had a double room and was never there and he got arrested for trying to hit another kid with a metal pole while he was off his face on drugs. So, hey-ho, here I am. 
And obviously, obviously, it is best for a country to have as many well-educated people as possible, and education should be for everyone. University opens up a world of knowledge, possibilities, but also socialising and friendships that are absolutely invaluable, except that one with that weird posh boy. But many students have complained in recent years that they're not even getting their money's worth from studying, with teaching hours being cut and academics being on zero-hours contracts, meaning they're having to find time to research in order to maintain their work rather than meeting and interacting with students. And if you're a student and you haven't really enjoyed your degree or felt that you'd learned what you thought you would, you can't really apply for a refund. A third of graduates now say that they regret going to university altogether, which is very sad, but it's still not as sad as that man in the pub who says, I didn't go to university because I went to the University of Life, mate, and yet he doesn't seem to have experienced or learned very much from going there either. But is it actually affordable for Labour or anyone else to suddenly scrap tuition fees, whether it sounds right or wrong? It's going to cost £100 billion to repay all current student debt. That's how much there is. Although apparently a third of that will never be paid back. £100 billion is the cost of doing a shifty deal with 100 DUPs. Imagine all that dinosaur denying. And even if a third of it wasn't to be paid back, that's still the same as doing a deal with 66.6 DUPs. That money's going to have to be found somewhere from either tax rises or wherever the Conservatives keep that special treat. But actually, not just paying that cost, the bigger issue may be keeping up with the funding universities are going to lose from Brexit. Foreign students pay a lot more than UK students, and already Cambridge University are reporting a 15% drop in applications from the EU. With Theresa May also insisting to not remove foreign students from immigration figures and a promise to reduce immigration, their numbers are likely to drop too, which is another big chunk of funding for universities gone. Then there's several universities that have debts saddled from the public finance initiatives they're part of, with consortiums of private sector banks and construction firms owning all the buildings that several universities use and loaning them out at ever-increasing costs. So actually, maybe just cutting the crazy interest rates and lowering the student tuition fees rather than scrapping them is the way forward, as that would still contribute money to the universities. Other suggestions include the government cutting back on loans, but using that money to give to the universities instead to buy their own endowments and use those to fund themselves in the future. This would make universities privately owned rather than publicly, which would be more like the US system, and that can have a heap of its own issues, but it would provide a way for higher education facilities to keep themselves going, which would keep things affordable for students. Another suggestion is that courses that are needed by the public are funded more by the public, and those that aren't that useful, like graphic design, brewing, or surf science, or, yeah, I guess my drama degree that's only really made me qualified to find a space, well, that those are funded by loans. Thanks, everyone. I mean, trying to work out a solution is harder than doing a degree itself. Well, I mean, the degree I did anyway. I didn't even have exams. But something does need to be done, as right now students are landed with a ton of debt that they're going to find really hard to pay back, and they'll be lumbered with it for life, while universities will suffer if they don't pay it back. Hopefully, a government review will come to some sort of conclusion. If it doesn't, we may have to find a way to educate some people in a special tuition fees degree course in order to handle it. At least that way, no matter the debt they accrue, they are guaranteed a really, really long-term job when they graduate. And now, back to Alan. And do you think that that's a change... Overall, because I mean, again, one of the worries, and, and, and in fact, well, let's get to that. Um, Britain, I think, or Westminster definitely didn't, both ignored, I think, personally, I feel like ignored Northern Ireland, not only during Brexit and then during election campaign, it seemed like they were a kind of side, uh, you know, you hear a side thought, really. Um, but also, there's been a lot of worries about tensions kind of rising again. I, I mean, part of me. Is I mean, from an outsider point of view, I am worried about that. But also being here and having been here a few times, it feels like there's a new generation. Yes, some definitely. Of that is long gone. Would you? Would you think that's? Yeah, I'm being naive. No, I, I think 
a couple of things. I mean, I th- obviously there will always be sectarian, you know, sectors, and there. But the proportion, I would say, of those people is getting. First of all, the demographic is getting older, mm-hmm. but also I think there's fewer and fewer of them. There's people my age, I'm sure, who um, are bigoted, um, but that proportion of those people is smaller than it was 20 years ago. But also, I think what has happened is there is a lot of tension, but we sort of forget that 20 years ago there, there wasn't any tension because we were just. Relieving the tension by shooting each other. Sure. So you know, <laughs> it's a great way to you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah you, you feel. Oh, I feel so much better. He's dead. You know, um, but so the tension seems like a bigger thing now. Well, I go. I don't mind a little bit of tension in exchange for you know fewer bombs and and you know motherless children and all. You know, like it's. I think sure. that's. And I know because you know, you know, for a while there it was like every night of the news was, and two men were killed today, and blah, blah, blah and everything was an attack or a, a bombing. So now because there, there's none of that really to talk about, the tension becomes more pronounced, sure. I suppose, and and it's, it's certainly more discussed more. Um, and it's not a good thing, but I definitely still think it's an improvement over you. Know, anybody, I mean, you, well, you've been here now. Anybody who doesn't see the difference between now and even 15 years ago. Just isn't looking for it, you know. There's not. There definitely has been a sea change. Yeah. Would you, do you know? To be honest, even in um, so I think the first time I visited it, it was quite. I was in my twenties. It was about two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. But just even noticing there were lots of gaps where buildings used to be yeah. still and things like that. And now, I mean, Belfast is so just developed and built. Up yeah, it's so all you know, touristy. Uh, well, I mean, we're in the cathedral quarter now, and it's yeah. like an artsy sort of place. There's yeah, all these nice great. pubs, and you know, it, it's it has changed a lot. I mean, even the fact that there are now quite a lot of tourists here. Mm. I mean, a friend of mine works for. There's a cruise ship that docks in Belfast like twice a week, and I'm thinking they come to Belfast. <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be. Yeah, definitely. It's. I mean, I can't think what else it would be. But um, I mean, nice July rain. Yeah. Um, but you know, so the, even the fact that they're there is, you know, you did you did a gig here last night, and there were tourists in the audience. Mm. You know, for 25 years at the Empire, there was no tourists because <laughs> nobody went on holiday to Belt. That was insane. Sure. You know, sure. so that, hotels. It's not. Yeah, those kind of differences must make you feel better about where this could go. You know, just in terms mm. of it being different about the past mm. resolution of, of issues, I suppose. Yeah, I think for a long time. Not to be too flowery about it, but I think for a long time that politicians really embodied Northern Irish politicians really embodied the conflict. Um, while now I feel like they embody the worst of Northern Ireland, you know, so they embody the the inability to compromise and the sectarianism and um, and also just the 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 sort of post conflict reality where you everybody's t- sort of weirdly they sh- they're tiptoeing around each other on certain things, but they're also just like, well, we can't trust him because of you know what, forty years ago, um, and that's changed. I think now you know, I say most people. Unfortunately, most of the people who are voting are voting for, I think, the wrong parties, but, I mean, that's their business. But there's that sort of disenfranchised and fed up yeah. undercurrent of people that is... Sorry to cut you off, but do you think that with, the, with this generational change as well, do you think people will vote for other parties ever? Like, is that ever... Yeah, I mean, the interesting is that, like, the... The Greens and the Alliance Party, which is really the only two non-sectarian parties, have seen their vote increase. Um, although I'm, I'm still of the opinion that one of the things they should do is look at normalising politics by having all the uh, mainland parties run in Northern Ireland. Yeah, because there's, I mean, one of the criticisms, I mean, the latest <coughs> criticisms during the election, obviously, of Labour, you know, in the, in the, by the media, but one of them was Labour have never had Labour MPs here, and yet mm-hmm. 
they've supposedly been a big, you know, part of the peace process. Yeah, I mean, at the, not this election, the one before, the Belfast Labour Party ran candidates right. without the consent of the, like the central committee or whatever. Of the, that makes it sound like the Soviet Union. You know what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, sure. um, <laughs> but uh, the, and they, I think they were all kicked out of the party for it. You know, because they were unauthorized candidates. That's crazy. On, on, they called themselves like the Labour Alternative or something. Um, but I think that has to be the NI Conservatives have never really taken off here because most of their policies are represented by the unionist parties. Sure. You know, pro-union, pro-business, you know, small government. Mm. Um, but I think Labour politics in particular, unless you, the part of the problem is. They are somewhat embodied by nationalist parties, but most unionists would never vote for a nationalist party under any circumstances. So they need a, one that's non-sectarian to yeah. have that. I mean, the Greens are probably the closest thing because um, the Alliance it has a weird mix of... Because its whole thing is we're non-sectarian, they have like right-wingers and left-wingers sure. in the same party. Um, but the Greens... Probably, I imagine the Greens in England suffer from the same problem, which is they just see them as those flowery, hippie people that are care about nothing but the environment. Yeah. So I think there needs they need to normalise the politics. And the Lib, I suppose the Lib Dems should run here. I mean, they might have a it'd be nice for them to win somewhere. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> yes. I think that's that's one step to give the people who are fed up somebody to vote for. Yeah. Rather than just go, I'll just sit in the house. They're all the same. That's not. Yeah, it, it baffles me as to why they don't do that. And I mean, do you? How did it feel being someone in Northern Ireland? Like, I don't know how much attention you, you paid to it, but all the coverage of, say, Corbyn's associations with uh, the IRA and mm-hmm. that, that came out during the elections, and basically it, it felt like Irish, uh, the Northern Irish politics being used as a smear campaign. Yeah. How did that feel? Well, it's strange. I mean, I, I joined the Labour Party and voted for Corbyn, and you know, right. I mean, a big, and then I kind of lost faith in him, and then got it back, you know, because he was, he sort of pulled it off. Um, but so I'm a Fairweather fan, but uh, <laughs> it, it was a funny one because I mean, I, I, I do think probably that he, he during the conflict, being a you know, a, a, certainly in the 80s, a, a pretty far left socialist, he probably wasn't as neutral as he mm. says he was now sure. um, but at the same time you know we, we're we in a country where you know loads of the government have been to jail for terror related offences and Margaret Thatcher was secretly meeting with Sinn Féin throughout the 80s while saying she would never ever do a deal with Sinn Féin so at some point you sort of have to go yes 40 you know 40 years ago they were talking to people who were doing bad things but at some point we have to those, those the same people are going to be there mm. so we can't just pretend that oh, we'll just ignore them and talk to the ones that we like. Sure. That doesn't work. Um, so, it, you know, I, I thought it was they made a meal out of it, really. Um, particularly whenever you know, I mean, at the minute, to my knowledge, one of the, the policies in Afghanistan is to buy off low, low level members of the Taliban with a wage because that's the main reason they're they're in it. Mm. So the hypocrisy of doing that and then saying, but it's wrong to talk to anybody who's you think is a terrorist seems. Yeah, daft, you know, and also the idea of we don't talk to terrorists. I mean, like we talk to terrorists every day. That's not, you know, and both sides would say that they're talking to people who committed like armed attacks against communities every day. And but at some point you have to go, well, yeah, that I think that's wrong, but that doesn't mean that we can't compromise and we can't, yeah, because that's the only way to get out of it. Ultimately, unless you're unless you're going to kill everybody on the other side, 
that's the only way to fix it. So yeah, that's why politics exists. Yeah, talk about it rather than. But I, I sort of wondered if there was a more because, it, as I said earlier, I think it, it really felt to me like Northern Ireland was ignored both in that election campaign that you didn't have an assembly and the mm-hmm. SNAP election pushed back the power sharing agreement yeah. talks and then and then Brexit. I felt like it, nobody considered what the nobody nobody that would be. and I I just didn't know if you felt a bit like hang on guys yeah well, I mean it did it did feel a wee bit whenever the election happened everybody was like oh look at Northern Ireland you're like. Yeah, thanks, guys. I mean, you know, 1998 was a long time ago. Can we have a bit of attention now, please? But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the calling the election was sort of silly because the election was called and then it was another day or two before we even heard what was going to happen with the power sharing talks. So it was so completely an afterthought that nobody even bothered to check it before they announced the election. Um, so we were just kind of forgotten about... And, I mean, I understand... I mean, the cynic in me says there's no votes in Northern Ireland. Right. So why bother? Although, as it turns out, there's quite a lot of votes in Northern Ireland, just <laughs> enough to prop up your government. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're, we're ignored. But then, I mean, maybe I'm, this is just, you know, me being very self-effacing and being very Irish about it, but there's less than 2 million of us, and there's, what, 65 million people in the UK. So, I mean, it's like ignoring one large city in England. It's not... <laughs> Sure. You know, I'm not saying it's right, but I can also understand why we're not necessarily high priority. We probably should be just because it's easier that it's easier if we're not shooting each other. Um, I mean, that's the dream for all of us, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so you know, put the time in. But um, I, what I would say is uh, disappointed, but not at all surprised that we were <laughs> we were ignored. Right. Sure. Okay. That's really interesting. And 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 lastly, I suppose what. Uh what do you think's next? You said you weren't sure. You think the power show group might just keep being pushed back? Do you think we're just going to end up with well, you not ever having an assembly in the deep yeah, slowly? I, I think until various policies, something has to change. So whether that's either the UP or Sinn Féin losing power or the Conservatives losing power, somebody's going to have to, you know, sit on the bench for a while. Um, and I, th- I think the most likely outcome is that the UK government changes. Um, although then it becomes a dicey issue if Jeremy Corbyn comes in and starts. You know, making demands, then the unionists will be like, "Oh, but he loves the ra," um, and it'll be a whole thing. But you know, I feel like something has to change, and until unless somebody you know, touchwood drops dead suddenly, or there's a new one of the parties loses out there, or one of those three parties, then we're just stuck in we limbo, aren't we? Right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And are there, are there any are there any DU people who you think the Conservatives should embrace <laughs> any favourites? Um, <laughs> I mean, they're they're anti um, uh, the spare bedroom tax. Oh, they're, they're against that, and they um, are very pro winter fuel allowance. They're a bit more populist than the Conservatives, yeah, you yeah. know, and they and they're in favour of the triple lock pension. So you know, I mean, they're not all awful, but then it's like. You know, if you if you I don't know saw a nice flower on the edge of a cliff and you picked it and then the cliff collapsed below you and you fell to your death, that's basically the DUP manifesto. You know, so you've got those nice wee bits at the front and then you go, oh, all, all the awful, sure, oh, all the all the hate. So hopefully we, just, we can just pick a few flowers and prop up the cliff. We'll be all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with a with a really long stick or something, we'll yeah. hook them. But uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe you'll be back talking to me one day and I'll be like, this is amazing now. This is we're loving it here. The Green Party's the. The, the government um, but well it is the Emerald Island it, well it just seems perfect really doesn't it yeah. um, but who knows I mean at the minute it just it feels very deadlocked but I'm cautiously optimistic that something will change one uh, day <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and very quickly just put you on the spot really but um, who 
do you think the listeners should check out or follow other than yourself obviously if they want to keep updated like it's, it's, I find it very hard with uh, Northern Irish politics to not follow someone that's biased in one yeah. way in particular or the other I didn't mm-hmm. know if you had any favourites that you like following on Twitter there's a few I mean I actually think the problem with Northern Irish politics as you say is that there's, there's very few neutral commentators so just follow a good range and um, the UTV political correspondent who's called Ken he's not Ken Clark I've forgotten but if you google the UTV political correspondent Ken, I'll find it he is uh, he's great he really knows his stuff and uh, is very has been doing it for a long time so knows all the parties really well and has sources that nobody else has um, and then there's things like Slugger O'Toole and also I, I'd be a big fan of uh, Loyalists Against Democracy which is a, a parody page but they post all the awful things that the parties do which is fun right. LED lad it's got, so but uh, look them up but yeah just generally uh, political correspondence for UTV or BBC Northern Ireland that's the that's the way to go you know but Perfect. and then I mean, apparently Jerry Adams is very funny on Twitter. So if you want to want to look at that, you know, I hear he's quite biased. Though. Well, I mean, he, but he is Jerry Adams. He's not. He's not. He's not celebrating the twelfth of July, to my knowledge. <laughs> Big thanks to Alan for sparing the time for me to interview him. Um, Alan can be found on Twitter at Alan, S-R-I-R-W-I-N. That's S-R-O-N. And if you're based in Belfast, he is performing an hour of new material at the Black Box Theatre on July the 17th at 8pm. Do check it out. It's going to be brilliant. Uh, the people Alan recommended following are Ken Reed, that's at Ken R-E-I-D underscore U-T-V and Mark Davenport, which is at Mark Davenport pretty much as it says on the tin uh, Big thank you also to the Black Box Theatre for the space, they've got loads and loads of great shows on there all the time so you do go and see stuff and also a big thank you to Beck Hill who stayed very quiet on the sofa throughout the interview despite threatening to make awful noises throughout uh, If you're going to the Edinburgh Fringe, do go and see Beck Hill's new show as well because it is absolutely brilliant There's only two more episodes before I take a break from this podcast for the summer but still uh if you have anyone you'd like me to interview or subjects you'd like me to interview people about please 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 do let me know i'm really keen to get more international politics stuff on and i think it is high time for a trump update which i've completely neglected from this show many times now um so if i can find a suitable interviewee to do that i will any suggestions would be great as always you can contact me via at parpolbro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com or write your message in secret code masked in the background of famous paintings and then eventually dan brown will write a shitty book about it i'll watch the film hate it and completely miss what you've asked yeah thinking about it just email me time for the partly political broadcast question of the week have you heard about Mogmania? yes it sounds like people going completely bonkers about cats but sadly it's actually far more depressing than that it's a social media phenomenon of a rise in facebook groups supporting or satirizing conservative mp and enemy of the baudelaire children jacob reese mogg Despite the MP for North East Somerset having a voting record that is so shitty it may as well include promising to sneer at kittens and push over grannies on it, when faced with the U-turning piss mess that is Theresa May, many would still prefer a conviction politician like Mogg, even if his conviction is to directly result in the awakening of a 21st century Dickens whose sole purpose is to describe the depravity a Mogg government would cause. Anyway, the news this week was that Mogg has had a sixth child. Yes, sixth. This now means there'll be at least one mini-boss at the end of every level before you 
you have to face him. His children are named Alfred Wolfric Layson Pius, Thomas Wentworth Somerset Dunstan, Peter Theodore Alfege, Anselm Charles Fitzwilliam, Mary Anne Charlotte Emma, and the new host body, Sixtus Dominic Boniface Christopher. So I asked you, the people, were this workhouse fertility icon to breed again, what on earth would he name his seventh, eighth, or even ninth child? At Budgie says, oh god, I'm sorry I meant to stop after five. That's a great name. Uh, at Cromity says, uh, I have just announced the birth of my sixth child, Bivouac Telisphorus Nutmeg Pepcac. At Reddit says, uh, Septimus Brexit Octavia Innovative Jam. At Bobador says, uh, one, spare parts for siblings Reese Mug. And two, wet nurse till university Reese Mug. At Benson Mike, uh, sent in a few. Uh, Bazinga, Oglivy, Bullingdon, Furiosa, Greyjoy, Resmog. Or which one are you again? We really must get name tags, Resmog. Uh, or lastly, not in the face, Resmog. At Real Deal Turner says Susan, if it's a girl. At Rob Thornley said he's waiting until number eight so that he can spawn Optimus Prime, Resmog. Do you know what? That is the only one I definitely applaud. Um, at Minnie Mayer says Jacob Resmog, part seven, the new blood. At Stephen McDade says Skeletor, Wizbit, and Baronet. At Danny Beckenham says Antares, Slarty Bartfast, and Riluk. Uh, Matt Kinson says he won't mind as long as it doesn't sound weird being chanted by monks. Uh, and he also says whatever is hot in the 1896 Big Book of Wizard Names. Andy Zoidberg Walker says Hansard, Constantina, and Chad. Uh, Tatten Spiller says Grudge Grind. Rob Skeen says Bucko, Varro, or the classic Biggest Dickus. Uh, James Ross goes for Sepsis, Octopodes, Nineveh, Tinnament, and Elevensies. Uh, Rhoda Baker says Septum Moggy. Richard Barnes says Septimus Platinum Spoon, Octavia Already Paid Through Eton, and Nonotorious Tory Bastard. And lastly, Andrew Mackay says Septic Anachronistic Filibuster Distool Reese Mog. Wow, I don't know how I didn't fuck up saying all of that about 15 times over. Uh, this is one of the few bits of the show that isn't edited. I feel like a tongue twister champion uh, there's going to be another question of the week next week uh, look out for it on the Facebook group or the Twitter page on Sunday night and send your answers over and in the meantime uh, presumably Jacob Rees-Mogg will have all of those children and name them all of those things like the fucking weirdo that he is Brexit Uh, quickity Brexit breaks quick this week. Liberal Democrat MP and chaser of Smurfs Vince Cable suggested on the Mars show on Sunday that Brexit may never happen. While that might be wishful thinking to old Vince, I'm starting to wonder if he's right, to an extent at least, or that rather it will happen but not by very much. And in the end, after faffing about for two years, we'll probably be back to just where we started, just paying even more to do so. Which, in a weird way, would probably please pretty much everyone. The reason I say this, though, is because in the past week, a majority of businesses surveyed by the British Chambers of Commerce want the UK to stay in the single market. A cross-party Brexit group has said that all options should be on the table, and they weren't talking about biscuit choices, although I also hope that they were, because really, that's the least they should get. And the EU has just signed a big free trade deal with Japan, which helps fill the hole the UK would make money-wise, meaning that they won't be half as bothered to sweeten any deals, or at least umami any deals. 
Not that they were anyway. I mean, they've just said that May's deal to EU citizens in the UK falls short of what citizens are entitled to, and the EU leaders said they will refuse to sign anything that removes rights already acquired by their citizens. And because of the decision to leave Eurotom, the European Nuclear Standards Agency, something that was included in May's letter announcing the launch of Article 50, the Royal College of Radiologists are warning that Brexit could affect cancer treatments in the UK, as we may not be able to get many of the materials needed if we go. So, Brexit could make Theresa May literally a cancer sympathiser. When it's said that people are battling with cancer, the Prime Minister Theresa May could well be the one arming the bad guys. Still, I suppose that's not really out of character, is it? And the High Court will probably tell us that it's lawful. But all in all, you kind of wonder if, at the end of the two years of all these Brexit negotiations, with all these complications that seem to keep appearing, that actually public opinion will be less about leaving the European Union and more about just leaving the European Union alone and getting on with our own shit, because fuck me, this is really, really boring. And that is all for this week's episode of Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And if you enjoy the show, please, please, please do spread the word. Review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or a rental car website, mainly to piss them off, as I discovered last week that they're called Hertz, because that's what they do to customers' bank accounts. Also, thanks to Acast for hosting the show, and my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all of his musics. Do check out his podcast, Thanks for Trying, when you can. This is going to be back next week, when Theresa May will have told Labour they would crash the economy before asking if she can copy their notes on the economy. Meanwhile, Donald Trump will find himself living on the White House lawn after Putin promises not to take over the Oval Office and Jacob Rees-Mogg is arrested after trying to kill a small boy wizard. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by the number six, which is the amount of children Jacob Rees-Mogg has and also the amount of sides on a cell in a beehive and the amount of legs bees have. Oh God, he's creating his own army of workers. Somebody must stop the Rees-Mogg! Jacob Rees-Mogg looks like a villain, a real nasty villain in a children's book. Oh, but he's so funny and he's so charming. Yes, so are villains. Just take a look. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.